Hey, well, thank you, Kevin. Uh, I am Tim Rogers, lead pastor here at Grace Point Church. Thank you so much for making your way here to GPC this morning. If you're listening online later, thank you for doing that. So great to see so many um, smiling, friendly faces this morning on Christmas. We also want to recognize that Christmas, for some people, is not the, the easiest time of year. So in the middle of our joy and celebration, if you are going to be experiencing some of the backside of that this season, we just want to give our love and support to you. We also know that this is a time when loss is more poignant or closer to some and loneliness rises. So we want to recognize that and acknowledge that and let you know we care about you and your story in that process. Okay? Um, I want to thank you, um, Grace Point Church, for your kindness to our family. And I know I echo the same sentiment of both Pastor Greg and Pastor Kevin. You have been incredibly gracious and kind to us this holiday season, this Christmas season. Thank you for your, um, your, uh, your, your kindness to us. I just want to say that. Um, I also have some very important news I want to share with you, and I think you may know some of the news that I'm going to share, but I want you to know this. I want you to know that you better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Not quite as much traction on that as I was hoping. I'm going to keep going, okay? He's making a list and he's checking it. He's going to find out who's... Because... Claws. Okay. Pretty good. Almost as good as Alicia here, but no, not, not quite. Here's where it gets a little creepy. He sees when you're sleeping... Does that bother anybody else? Okay. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. So what are you supposed to do? And then here's where it also gets weird. With little tin horns and little toy drums, Rudy Toot Toots and Rummy Tum Tums. What are Rummy Tum Tums? <laughs> Santa Claus is coming to town. He sees again when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows you've been bad or good. So, goodness sake, goodness sake. You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout telling you why Santa Claus is coming to town. Then it finishes. Santa's a busy man. He has no time to play. He's Santa Claus. Are you kidding me? He has no time to play. He's got millions of stockings to fill on Christmas Day. Merry Christmas to you. The story, the song, teaches kids something very simple, simply this, that your present choices will shape your future. <laughs> right? And he sees when you're sleeping, which is kind of awkward and strange if you stop to think about it. He knows when you've been bad or good, so of course you should be good, for goodness sake. And the reason you should be good in the present is because you want a different future than you have right now. You have a future that is in the balance, and we don't know if Santa's going to deliver goods for you in the future, so in the present, you better do the best thing that you can do so that your future is better than your present. And so really, to finish this thought, your present choices will shape your future's future, so it's best to know what future you're aiming for in the present. Do you want a different future than you have in the present? And if you do, then it makes sense to orient your present around that future idea. And our songs teach our kids this basic idea. This is not a new or fresh idea to us. But it is a powerful, powerful idea. It is a powerful idea that shapes us at Christmas time. It's a powerful idea that shapes us in everything that we do. It's a powerful idea that shapes how you work in your job. If you want a great review next year, you're going to work for a particular reason right now. If you're trying to pursue or win the heart of a young man or a young woman 
for engagement or marriage, you're going to act in a certain way in the present to secure a different future. If you're going to want to restore a relationship, you're going to act a little bit different way. And so for all of us, and we know it's true, that our desired future, if we have that in mind, shapes our present day. That's just the way things work. What I want to talk about this morning, particularly around this Christmas season, is what actually rises above all of our small little goals that we have. And all of us do have goals, because right on the back end of Christmas season is the New Year resolution period of time. It'll be end of year review. What have we done and where are we going? And in that space, all of us will be rethinking, who am I, what am I doing? And what I want to encourage us this morning to do is take a little bit of a a bigger view about not just what are my immediate goals as a man or as a woman, as a husband or as a wife or as a student or employee, as a boss, as a CEO of your organization, whatever it might be, not just what are my immediate short-term six-month, three-year goals, But I want us to back up from that for a minute and ask, in the bigger picture, what is actually my guiding, if you will, North Star? What is it that, over top of all of the smaller things that I want to do, that is in my relationships with my family, my relationship with my work coworkers, employees, classmates, etc., on top of all that, what is it that actually guides and directs everything that I do? What is it that provides direction for every little piece of my life? What is it that at the end of my life I can look back on and without regret say that this big idea, this key concept filtered down through every part of my heart and soul in every season of my life and shaped how I saw the people around me and my faith and how I made that work. What is that for you and what is that for me? So around Christmas time, I think there's no better time than to stop and ask that question. And the passage of Scripture that we have been in for the last three weeks and now this morning will be our fourth and final one in this little series that I so aptly called Christmas, leads us right up into that point. It leads us to a picture of a future that is, um, for the Christian, both sure and secure and also guides and directs. Now, if you're listening this morning and you're not a Christian this morning, you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus. That's okay. I want to invite you to hear what Christians think the future will look like. And if you're not there, I want to encourage you still to consider what your own future will look like. And I want to talk with you a little bit later on as well. So if you have a Bible with you, I want to invite you to turn to the little letter to the church at Philippi called Philippians. If you don't have a Bible with you, it's no problem. There's a Bible in the pew around you. That's our gift to you if you don't own a Bible. But Philippians chapter 2 is where we're going to be. And we've been in verses 1 through 11. We're going to get back there to orient to the passage. And we're going to finish with 9 to 11 in particular this morning. So Philippians chapter 2, beginning... At verse 1, Paul is writing to a very young church who's trying to figure out what they are about and what they're going to become, and he writes to them about who Jesus is and how their attitude as a young church should be formed. So verses 1 to 4, Philippians chapter 2, Paul writes, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love... If any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, 
but in humility consider others better than yourselves. And each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. I'm going to pause it there because I think the idea breaks at that point. I think this was Paul's main point to the young church. I think this is what he was trying to communicate. He was trying to tell them this is what your attitude should look like. And if you were with us in the first part of this series, I tried to make the point that he's making such a high, um, setting the bar so high that it's almost impossible to imagine that he's actually telling the truth, that this is actually feasible or possible. And I think what he tries to do is in his mind say, how can I help people understand that this kind of um, utter um, selflessness and unity is actually available for people, because people won't believe that it actually is possible. So the best idea I think that he came up with is to say, you know, let me give them a picture of who Jesus was because he demonstrated these very characteristics. And so he goes on in verse 5 and then on down through 11 to speak to the young church to say, this is what your attitude should be like. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. The first week, we talked about this reality that Jesus was fully God in the flesh. We believe that. Christians believe that. That he didn't give up his deity or his godness in this Christmas season to come in flesh. He actually retained the fullness of his deity. Verse 7, But he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. In the second message, we tried to convince you that he actually retained and took on the fullness of humanity. Everything that it means to be human, the essence of humanity being made in the image of God, Jesus took on. Last week we were in verse 8, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even to death on a cross. And last week I tried to make the point that if you want to see the clearest truth about who God is, look no further than to the cross, because this is the clearest demonstration of God's love to us his self-sacrificial death on the cross, that God died for us on the cross. Amazing principle. Now, verses 9 to 11, the, the scene shifts a little bit. The one doing the action in this narrative shifts. Verses 6 to 8 is about Jesus Christ, about who he is and what he's done. And then now things shift to God the Father in verse 9. It begins with the word therefore. It's kind of saying, as a result of what came before, therefore God, implication God the Father, exalted him, so took him, Christ, to the highest place. This is, only makes sense in contrast to the lowest place where Jesus just was. He was in the grave. He was humbled to the point of death on a cross. He was considered a traitor. He was crucified like a common criminal in the lowest place that humanity had to offer. And so it only makes sense in light of that, that in contrast to that, now God the Father elevated him to the highest place, that he exalted him. The Greek word actually here means, it translated, super exalted, above exaltation, exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every Name. Now here's what we, we know about names. It's kind of funny, but when you, when you do things that no one else does, you get a name that no one else gets, right? When you do things, and when I do things that no one else does, you get a name, and I get a name that no one else gets, right? Believe it or not, and I know my family would have a hard time believing this, but in my home growing up, I actually was known as the one who could find lost things in our home. Uh, I think my wife would tell you that that 
role has switched to her uh, now. Um, but I just allow her to find them now, is what I say. But I would often be the one who would do that, because I could do things, I, for whatever reason, I would find quite a lot of things. And when you do things that no one else does, you get a name that no one else gets. When I played college basketball, they nicknamed me Hard Hat, because apparently I kept diving all over the floor for the ball. And I'd, I guess that's just the name you get when you do things like that. We have names of people that are synonymous with other things in our culture. Uh, Benedict Arnold means something to us. You traitor, Benedict. Give me your John Hancock means something to us because John's signature is bigger on the Declaration of Independence than anybody else. No one names their kid Judas Iscariot anymore, do they? Uh, Because when you do things that no one else does, you get a name that no one else gets. Mother Teresa's name means something because she has done things that no one else does and she gets a name that no one else gets either. While we might name our kids Teresa, the idea of Mother Teresa, her reputation and all that precedes her, right? So this principle is pretty simple. We understand it. And when Jesus has done something that no one else does, he gets a name that no one else gets. And his name gets to be exalted higher above everything else. And this is what Christians believe. And Paul goes on to write about it this way. He says, verse 10, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And what he's saying in this picture is a picture of the fullness of all intelligent beings, both in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, wherever the spirit realm exists. I don't think we're talking physically about under the physical earth, as in under our feet. Just dig down far enough in the strata of the earth, and you will find what Paul is talking about. I think this is metaphorical, but it's speaking to the spiritual realm that all intelligent beings everywhere, he is saying, will at one day bow the knee, which is speaking to worship, and use the tongue, which is to speak of confession or acknowledging that Jesus Christ is Lord. The Greek word kurios, the one who is highest above all other names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue confess, to the glory of of God the Father, that there is a surety or a confidence that this indeed will happen. And the reason that Paul is confident about this is because this is not the first time that this shows up in the Bible. It's not the first time this shows up in God's revelation to man. In fact, this has hints that go all the way back to the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 23, we read this, that by myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me, every knee will bow. By me, every tongue will swear. That there is an anticipation that there will be a Messiah who will be to come. That the Old Testament worldview is that there is a God who exists who at one day will bring all of this world under control. And all will confess to who he is. In 1 Corinthians 15, 25-26, Paul writes about this concept again. He says, For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And if and when you are able, or I am able, to destroy the power of death, I think you end up ruling over all. Because what else can beat you if death cannot? As you've probably heard me say, that if you end up being the one who dies and is resurrected again, we tend to listen to what you have to say if you beat the power of death. Paul, later on in Romans chapter 14, writes it this way. He says, for this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. 
you then, why do you judge your brother? Why do you look down on your brother? In other words, if Christ is the judge and he's the one who died for our sins, why do we judge one another for the sins that we commit against each other? Who gave us the right to do that? And he goes on to say, for we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me and every tongue will confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. And so this idea is prevalent throughout the scriptures that Christians believe that this indeed is as sure as your presence here this morning. It's as sure as the breath that you are taking this morning. It is sure as you looking at yourself in the mirror and believing you actually exist. That the surety or the confidence that there will be a time when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess is replete throughout the scriptures. This is what Christians throughout history have believed. And so what do you do with that? And here's what Paul said at the end of this section right here. Look at it again. He says, so then, here's the so what. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. In light of this future, in light of this idea that there is a future where every knee will bow and tongue confess, he's saying, you know what? The things that you do now, the way that you carry yourself now, the priorities you have in business right now, in your family right now, with your children right now, with your significant others right now, the way that you're handling conflict, the way that you're handling the struggle of life, all of these things that you're wrestling with, they matter. It matters how you live. It matters how you love. It matters how we forgive. It matters how we have that attitude of Christ in us for both unity and selflessness. It matters. Because one day we will all give an account to God because at one day all knees will bow before him and we will, we will have this response to him to say, this is what I've done with the life that you have given to me. I ask the question, do I carry myself in a way that is consistent with this big idea? Do I carry myself in my marriage with my children and the work that I do that is consistent with the idea that there will come a day when I will bend my knee to God. When I will confess to him that he is indeed Lord and that I wasn't. See, Christians have been confident of this for generations. Now, you may be sitting here this morning or listening online later and you say, well, that's good for Christians, good for them. They can believe that all they want. It sounds a little weird to me. It sounds a little bit like the song we sang at the beginning here, that Santa Claus is coming to town. Like, yeah, is God just a big one of those who sees us when we're sleeping and you better be good. Be good for goodness sake. So here's what I want to say to you. I can be glad for the conversation, but um, regardless of your faith conviction, here's what we know about life that all of us, again, regardless of what we believe, all of us orient our lives around something, regardless of your faith conviction. All of us have a a north star, if you will, that guides our thinking. We all wrap our ideas around something. Sometimes we get too far in the weeds that we only think three, six, nine months out, sometimes a year, three, five, ten. There are times we stop and we'll think about retirement. Will we save enough money for it? Our future health, family, things like that. But I'm talking bigger than that. I'm talking about the things that at the end of your life you will not regret. Here's what I think I know, and you can react to this in your own time, but here's what I think I know, that if you've lived long enough to have any regrets, regrets are an incredible teacher to us. Regrets teach me this, that there has been a time in my life when I thought I had a great idea 
I thought it was a great idea to date this girl. I thought it was a great idea to buy that car. I thought it was a great idea to move to this location. And later on, later on, I realized it wasn't a great idea to date that girl. It wasn't a great idea to buy that car. It wasn't a great idea to move to that location. And the irony of regret teaches me that at a particular point in my time-space history, I am firmly convinced that I am able to make the best decisions about my future, and I firmly believe it. If you were to ask me in that space, is it a good idea to date this girl, to buy the car, to move to the space, to respond this way, I would probably say yes, and here's why. But regret teaches us that there has to be something beyond us that guides us because we can't fully be trusted to assess our own lives. Christians say, I get it. This is what we mean by God's sovereignty. This is what we mean, Christians, by saying we're going to submit our attitude to the attitude of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Christians want to, we regularly fail at, we want to submit our marriages to, our business decisions to, our relationships to, the lordship of Jesus Christ. That at the end of time, I can look to God and say, I've given you the best that I have on the model of Jesus Christ. Another way I can put it is, I want to just tell you about my friend Sarah quickly. Sarah's dad actually used to be my youth pastor back in the day. That was just 10 years ago when I was in youth group. And uh, delayed laughter, I appreciate that. That's good. Uh, Sarah is a strong young woman now. She's in her 30s. Um, She has uh, wrestled with uh, cancer. She's had a double mastectomy. And she also, uh, in the course of that, um, her fiancé broke off the engagement, which is always a bummer, right? Um, Sarah is very intelligent, uh, Ivy League-educated uh, woman, uh, author of a couple different books, and a registered nurse. And if Sarah wanted to, Sarah could make quite a living for herself here in the U.S. A very well-spoken, very articulate, very sharp, um, and has a strong faith. Um, so a very strong young woman. Um, here's what Sarah is doing right now. Sarah... Um, raised some money to go back to South Sudan, and she just landed uh, last week in South Sudan. I don't know if you know what's going on in South Sudan, but um, not a lot good is going on in South Sudan right now. A war-torn country, civil war um, uh, is going on, and actually listed in the top five nations in the world where genocide is most likely to occur next. Um, And South Sudan is right on that list. That is not a list you want to be on. Dangerous situation for Sarah, but here's what... um, Sarah's doing um, now. She's taking her nursing skills back to South Sudan. And here's what she, she posted this yesterday on Facebook. And this is what she said um, attached to her post. She's, she wrote this. Uh, she died in a bright pink dress. A small woman in her mid-40s whose family hired a car to drive her to the hospital from a village several hours away. Her parents, uncle, sister, and daughter made the trip with her. They said she'd been sick for two days and was even weaker today, so they brought her in. Her male relatives carried her limp body into the ER and laid her on the bed. I rushed over with my stethoscope and a blood pressure cuff. I called her name. I rubbed her chest with my knuckles. No response. I searched for a pulse in her neck. I listened to her heart and realized it was no longer beating. I checked her pupils with a pen light, and they were fixed and dilated. I stood up, took a deep breath, 
turned to her family and shook my head. She's gone, I said. I'm very sorry. Her teenage daughter collapsed in heart-wrenching sobs. The nurses put gauze over the woman's mouth and used strips of fabric to tie the woman's thumbs and big toes together. They covered her in the white shawl that she had worn to the hospital. And we carried her on a stretcher to the morgue, an unassuming white cement block building at the edge of the hospital compound. Later, I left the hospital and went for a walk, hoping to visit A, this little girl with a beautiful smile. She wasn't home, but the family who lives in a tent next door was. A little boy who lives there runs to me every time he sees me and presses his palm against mine. He stands there for a few minutes, studying our touching hands, and then runs back to his mom. His little ritual makes me laugh. And this is South Sudan. Grief and hope, losses and gains, endings and beginnings, death and life. And in the midst of it all, an unrelenting joy. Sarah firmly believes that the love of Christ compels her not just to make money, but to make a difference. Not just to make a point, but to be an influence. That this one life that she lives will be guided by a north star that says... Let your attitude be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who did not hold on to the trappings of what he could have had, but gave himself up for the benefit of those around him. And this is the question that I ask myself, and I maybe want to ask you this morning, what are you bending your knee to this morning? I don't want you at the end of your life, quite frankly, to regret the season of life that you're in right now. And some of you might be on the verge of regret. Some of you might be in a season right now where it takes too much courage to change a decision that you are currently in, but you know in the back of your mind, in the depths of your heart, you are about to make a decision that you should not make. But it's going to take too much to change it. I want to encourage you to think. What are you bending your knee to? What do you really want the future of your life to look like? Because at Christmas time, Jesus came in the fullness of deity and the fullness of humanity to model for us a courage to do whatever was needed to do to honor the will of his Father. That his name will be the name above every name. That in the name of Jesus, there will be a time when every tongue will confess, every knee will bow. And I don't want for you, and I don't want for me, to get the end of your life, to get the end of mine, and wish that if only in that season, if only at that Christmas of 2018, when I heard that message, when I knew, when I saw, when I got a picture of what I could or should be doing, I delayed, I waited, I pushed off, I didn't do what I know that I should have done. What's guiding you? What's your North Star? What are you bending your knee to? A couple years ago, there was a, a band who wrote a song it's become pretty popular, at least in Christian circles and church circles. And here's what they had to say about the origin of this song. They said, that, they said this, that Jesus has the name above all others. And anything that we can name from our greatest triumphs to our greatest challenges comes under the authority of his name. 
This song confesses that no greater beauty or source of wonder exists outside of Jesus. And here's the opening lyrics to the song. It says this, You were the Word at the beginning. Capital W. Meaning you were God at the beginning. One with God, the Lord Most High. In other words, you existed in eternity past. And then it goes on to say, Your hidden glory in creation now revealed in you, our Christ. What a beautiful name it is. The name of Jesus Christ, my King. What are you bending your knee to? If you're here this morning and you don't follow Christ, I get it, I understand that. And if I were in your shoes, I'd probably be making the same decisions that you are. But I want to encourage you to have a conversation. I want to encourage you to think about what is my North Star? What am I really bending my knee to? What is my guiding principle? I want you to encourage you to think about it. If you call yourself a believer this morning, I want to encourage you in the next week as you think about your resolutions for next year and think about how 2018 went and what you want your 2019 to look like, to ask yourself, is there anything I need to start, stop, increase, or decrease in my family, in my business, in my faith, in my connections, in my community? So that as I bend my knee, as I yield to the will of my Father, that everything that I do will be in view of that there will come a time when I will bend my knee, when I will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that that time is coming. And in light of that, this then is how I will live. What do I need to start, stop, increase, or decrease? That at the name of Jesus, and what a beautiful name it is, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And so, when I tell you, Merry Christmas, that's what I mean. Merry Christmas. Because what a gift it is to see that God, in eternity past and in eternity future, took on flesh to be with us in this space. And Christians, church, let your attitude be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the very form of a servant, become obedient to death, so that we have a future that is sure. Merry Christmas to you. Merry Christmas. And what a beautiful, beautiful name it is of Jesus Christ, our King. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time in this season to stop, to pull back and think again about who we are and what we're doing in light of the hope of Jesus, in light of what we call the incarnation of Jesus. We thank you that we have the space to think again, to hear again. And I pray this morning, especially for those of us this morning who are in the midst of making decisions that we will regret, and right now, we don't think we will. I pray for all of us who are in that category, that you would help us to submit our plans both to you and to those around us who are wise, whom we trust, who can help us not make decisions now that we will later regret. And I pray that you would help guide us with this concept that there will come a time when we will 
bend our knee, that we will confess that you are Lord. And so I pray if that is true, that you would help us today to make you Lord today, that you would help us submit to your will now because we will ultimately get someday. And so I pray that you would help us to see again the power and the beauty of the name of Jesus Christ at this Christmas season. And what a beautiful, beautiful name that is. Give us courage. I pray that you would give us courage to do what we need to do with the things that we have heard this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.